0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes um, from what the church traditionally is called the Annunciation, um, where uh, the young girl Mary hears from the angel Gabriel. Let's share in God's good word together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. If you take your sermon notes out, the first thing that I want you to know comes from the gospel of Luke chapter two, verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, this is to the shepherds, but this is sort of the overview of everything of the Christmas story. Do not be afraid for see, I'm bringing you what kind of news, good news of great joy for how many people? All the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. What kind of news? Good news. How much joy? Great joy. For how many people? For all the people. This Christmas, I hope you will never forget that Christmas is, say it with me, good news of great joy for all people. That's the message of Christmas. Good news of great joy for all people. Even when the news of a baby is coming to a 13 or 14 year old girl in a small peasant town in Nazareth. Nazareth was so small, so insignificant that it didn't even show up on first century maps. You'd simply go right by it. Now there's Jerusalem and there's Bethlehem, but there's uh, no Nazareth In that village, Mary was on the lowest rung of Jewish society. She was a peasant girl. She was not a Roman citizen. She had no standing, no importance at all among her own people, certainly not in the region. It was to this girl, this lowly peasant girl in a small town of nowhere that God's message Gabriel, messenger Gabriel comes. He appears to her and he announces that she would give birth to the long awaited messianic king. This is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years to make things right. We call this event the Annunciation. It's great not only for what it tells us about Mary, but also for what it teaches us about God. Well, why Mary? Why why not a Roman citizen? Why not in a palace? If this is going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, why not make it spectacular? So the story goes like this. Gabriel, the angel whose name means hero of God, Appears as a mere man. There are no wings in this story. No halo that we know of. Simply an unusual man shows up on her doorstep to marry one day. And he had come looking specifically for this girl. In a nowhere place, in a nowhere town. To a family that no one would have known about. And it was to this girl, this young teen. That would give birth to the long awaited messiah. And today, more than 2,000 years, more than a third of the world's population, more than 2 billion people worship this child that she would give birth to more than 2,000 years ago. So in the beginning of the story, Mary goes, she finds out that she's pregnant. She goes to stay with her older cousin, Elizabeth, for the first trimester, the first three months of her pregnancy. And when Elizabeth is talking to Mary, she says this, um, after John the Baptist um, bounces around in her belly, She's like, wow, this is a, this must be an important thing. And she says to Mary, blessed are you among women. And upon hearing Elizabeth's words, Mary breaks out in song and it's recorded in Luke 146. It's known as the Magnificat. And it goes like this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of a servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, I've only been through two Pregnancies with Chantel in the first trimester. And I never heard her say. My soul magnifies the Lord. I love the morning sickness. And the crackers in the bed. But Mary. And I'm not knocking it. I mean it's just so unusual. That a 13 or 14 year old girl. Would have this sort of response. To a pregnancy. That could cost her her life. To not be married in those days. Was a very dangerous business. And it would take a great deal on Joseph's part to protect her and to help her get to Elizabeth and to lay low until it came time for the baby to be born. So why did God choose Mary? Well, I believe partly because God looks with favor on those who are willing and those who are lowly. He lifts them up. He blesses the hungry while scattering the proud. He brings down the powerful and he sends the rich away empty, the scripture says. says, what are Mary's qualifications to be the very theotokos, the bearer of God? That's what the early church called her. Her qualifications are simply this. One, Mary was humble. Two, she had a heart for God. And three, she was willing. She was willing to offer herself wholly to God in her lowly state. And that's what God still looks for today. People who are humble. People who are willing. People who have a heart for Him. And those who are most unlikely. God chooses the humble, the unlikely, the lowly. God chooses an elderly, Abraham and Sarah, to bring forth the chosen people. He brings forth Moses, even though he had been a murderer, one who had run from Egypt. He was a stutterer, tended sheep, and he became the lawgiver and the deliverer of Israel. God chooses David, the youngest and smallest of the sons of Jesse to be Israel's greatest king and he chooses Mary a peasant girl in Nazareth to bear the Messiah this is an important theme in Jesus ministry we hear it over and over again in all of the gospels luke 14:11 puts it this way for all who exalt themselves will be what humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted in another place, in Mark, he says, whoever wishes to become greatest among you must be your servant. And in Matthew, he says, the last will be first and the first will be what? Last. He says, if you go to a dinner party, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. He says, you know, don't go to the head table and accidentally someone have to say, uh, this is not for you. Move down. If that's ever happened to you, It's horrible. You never want that to happen. Jesus says, no, no, no. Go to a place that's not a place of honor. And wouldn't it be great if the person at the head table says, what are you doing down there? Come on up. That's where you want to be. Humble yourself that one who is greater than all will lift you up. When Jesus chose his disciples, who did he choose? Did he choose the seminary train, those with doctorates in theology? No, he chose fishermen and tax collectors and other unlikely candidates. And he taught them humility on the last night of his life by washing feet. He tied a towel around his waist and he said, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right. That's who I am. And so if I, your teacher and Lord, do these things, wash your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. You see, the entire Christmas story is a part of a story about the reversal of the values of our world. God's kingdom comes to earth and turns things on its head. People who used to have no hope now have hope. People who used to think that they were all-powerful find out that they are very tiny compared to the God of the universe. The first people God invites to see the Christ are shepherds. The very furthest people away from the palaces guarding the temple sheep. This story is a call for us to humble ourselves before God, trusting that God will lift us up You see, pride is a dangerous sin from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis to today. It convinces us, this pride does, that we are better than we really are, that we deserve more and that we are somehow above the law or better than others. But people are always eventually humbled. The author of 1 Peter wrote about pride this way. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? To the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that He might lift you up, exalt you in due time. God opposes the proud. Well, what does that mean for us? We live in one of the richest zip codes in our entire state and one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. What does it mean for those of us here tonight, here today, in our world? What does it mean for people who are not hungry or poor? It means that we ought to humble ourselves before God. The apostle Paul wrote to the early church in Philippians. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to God to the point of death even death, on a cross. And so we place it central in our worship that in that obedience to a cross, Jesus changed everything. He changed the entire world. And it all started with His humility as a baby. That God would choose to come as an infant in a stable in the dark of night. It is easy, though, isn't it, for pride to sort of sneak into our lives, especially when we are in places of privilege. We begin to think that the world revolves around us somehow. A few years ago, uh, about five years ago now, in 2009, um, I took about a six to eight week sabbatical. I was doing some studying and uh, the church was very gracious as as we just moved into this building a few years earlier. and, And I found myself driving down Danforth Um, just a few miles south of here and I, and I looked down at the speedometer and I was going 10 miles over the speed limit. Do you know why? Because other people were passing me. Now I would remind you that this was three weeks into my sabbatical. I had no meetings to attend, no place to go. I could not be late to anything. I had nothing to do. I was intentionally on a time of Sabbath that I did nothing for that week, and yet I was speeding, breaking the law 10 miles over the speed limit just so I could keep up with the other sinners around me. You see how easy it is to get trapped in this? That somehow we think we're so important that we should break the law. We need to get someplace a little faster faster. Than the law allows. And these tiny little judgments of ourselves. We place ourselves above the law. And as we do it here and we do it there. It can just grow on us if we're not careful. And then we're humbled. You know the passage from 1 Peter. Reminds us that God opposes the proud. And the author of the book. Not a silent night. Where we draw this um, sermon series from. He writes this. He says one of the things I've noticed. Is that you're going to be humbled one way or another. Adam Hamilton writes, he says, you either humble yourself or God will do it for you. I think he's right about that. And he writes, when God does it for you, maybe you show up on the front page of the newspaper. Or your family and everyone in the neighborhood knows about it. And you're humiliated and brought low. You see, the wise person, how much better would it be to humble yourself before God and say, God, help me. Help me remember who I am, that my life is a gift from you and that anything good ultimately comes from you. Help me to live like that and to treat people well. God chose Mary, a young girl from a nowhere town to give birth to the Savior of the world. So what is this grace that we talk about? We talk about Mary full of grace. What does that mean? But well, when Gabriel came to Mary, he said, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, the words favored one and full of grace are translated just in one word in the Greek. And at the root of that word is the Greek word C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis. It's the root of charisma. That thing that's beautiful, graceful, stylish. It's also found in the passage from 1 Peter. God opposes the proud, but gives Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, grace to the humble. Now, this word appears 170 times in the New Testament in, in some form or another. And about half the time, 87 of those times, charis is translated as grace, as grace. It is a very important word, a very important concept, a very important piece of life in Christ. So Mary is full of this charisma, this life, this love, this kindness, this mercy, this grace. What does that mean? We gather one of the greatest known hymns of the church over the last hundred years is amazing grace. Grace. Of course it is. We say grace at mealtimes. My great aunt was named Grace. Someone who's beautiful and acts in a certain way is said to be graceful, full of grace. What does that mean in the New Testament? Well, Paul begins most of his letters to the early church with these words, grace and peace to you. That's one of your blanks there if you're following along. Grace and peace to you. And he ends these letters with these words. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In the New Testament, we read that we stand in God's grace. We live in God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. This grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. If you think of it as an anacronym, it is his blessings, God's goodness, forgiveness, salvation. But it's more than all of that. It's not just that for the good people of the church. It's all of these things when they are yet undeserved, when they are pure gift. You see, grace has the power to change our very lives. Grace, this love, this mercy, this thing that is beyond Our imagination or our dreaming is at the center or the heart of what God was doing at Christmas. God came down in God's fullness in this baby. And this love came down and dwells among us through the power of the Holy Spirit today in the person of Jesus Christ. God was gracious to Mary, filled her body, filled her womb with grace. She was full of grace because she was full of Jesus. God had chosen her, even though she did not deserve it. And God chooses us, even though we don't deserve it. Mary, full of grace, will give life to the one who is the very embodiment of grace. The child to be born of Mary was grace incarnate. And everyone needs this grace. One of the things that's confusing about grace is that we think of it as only necessary for the sinners. But that's not true. We are all sinners and we all need grace. That is true, of course. But even when we know God well, we still need God's grace. A number of years ago, a little movie called Fred Claus came out. I do not necessarily recommend it to you. Um, but it has a point that I want to bring up to you tonight. And, and in the movie Fred Claus, even Santa needs Grace. According to Fred Claus, according to Fred Claus, Santa is the younger of two brothers. There is Fred Claus, the older brother. And then there is Nicholas who becomes Santa Claus, the younger brother. And in the very early days of their relationship, everybody loved Nicholas. And Fred wanted to love Nicholas. But for all of us who have had little brothers, maybe you have. Sometimes it can be difficult. Let's take a look. Sometimes life just happens that way, doesn't it? He means well. It just never seems to work out with that kid. He loves his brother. He wants to do something nice for him. But it breaks his heart and his only little chirp, chirp friend (laughs) flies away. It's just heartbreaking. The rest of the story basically goes that Fred and Santa, they don't really ever get along. Even into adulthood. And they struggle as families do this time of year. And grace is needed, both for little Nicholas and for Fred. Now, here's the thing about grace. Many of us have heard or even believed in something called cheap grace. To where you can do whatever you want and it can be forgiven. That's not exactly true. You see, grace is not opposed to effort. Sometimes it can be very difficult to make things right. But grace is opposed to earning. You can never earn God's grace. It is a gift. But sometimes it does require great effort to be a person of grace. To be full of grace. To be graceful. For sure, when you were married, it took a lot to be full of the grace of God and to give birth to Him that night on Christmas. You see, for the sinner, grace is a gift. And for those who are living close to God, grace is holy fuel. Holy fuel, that that empowerment that comes to you, that enables you to extend grace to those places that you think still do not deserve it or maybe um, that you would never even consider giving it before. Grace is something that both the person who extends it and the person who receives it both need in their life. We all need grace according to Dallas Willard. And that's why we have communion here each and every time we gather to be filled with the grace of God. That very thing that empowers us to be light into the world. And when Jesus ministered and hung out with people of his day, let me ask you this question. Did he go to the nice kids or the naughty kids? You can circle one. Which was it? Well, it's both, of course. So you can circle one, then you can circle the other, and you can circle three, and you can circle four, and you can circle the world. Because that's who Jesus came to save. In the Scriptures, we find that Jesus hung out with temple folks and religious folks that did the right thing. In Luke 7, we find a Pharisee named Simon, and he's right there with him. And then there's a knock at the door. Jesus goes, and who is it? But the town prostitute. And Jesus welcomes her, and she weeps at his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Jesus loved her and Simon. Why did she do it? Because God and Jesus had demonstrated love and care and kindness and compassion and forgiveness to her. Grace changed her. And grace changes us. But you know, the tragedy of that story was the nice guy Simon, his heart turned cold. Because he didn't really want to share Jesus with that town prostitute. His heart filled with pride. And I would remind us that God opposes the proud. Even if we've done a lot of good things. God gives grace to the humble. Jesus came that we might know what God is really like. Grace for all. Grace for all. Those who are humble. Those who are willing. Those who are lonely. Those who have a heart for God. You see, the Apostle Paul grew up believing that if he were just good enough. God would love him. And we get a lot of that teaching in our culture today, don't we? And we teach our kids, you know, be a good kid. Santa's watching. The elf on the shelf is watching you be a good kid. Right? It's out there. That is not the Christian message. The Christian message is that God so loved the world. Not just the nice list. And that's a part of the story of Fred Claus. Fred actually goes up to see Santa because he's in trouble. He needs some money. So, you know, his family's due. He goes up to his, his kid brother who said he'd pay him if he helped him out with Christmas. And Santa assigns him the naughty nice list. Fred decides, you know what? I don't believe in that. So he marks everybody nice. Every single kid. Of course, it's more than they know what to do with. And Santa and Fred are at it again. You see, friends, Fred was on to something. When grace is extended, miracles happen. When we don't extend grace, it sours into pride. Like with Simon. When grace is extended, miracles happen. Ephesians 2 puts it like this. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. When grace is extended, it is a beautiful gift. And it changes the world. Now, after a horrible, huge, uh, knockout, you know, dragged out fight between Santa and Fred, Santa has an idea as Fred's about to leave and has done nothing right, has messed up all sorts of things. But I want you to see what Santa chooses to do some 40 years later. Let's take a look. Some 40 plus years of problems here and cussing that and arguments there and fighting back and you're no good and you're worse and ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. And someday Santa decided... My brother's more important. Grace is more important. But notice that that grace required effort. He had to go and build the birdhouse. He had to go and make amends. This is a very hard thing to do. And note this. There's no guarantee with what happens on the other side. You don't get to determine to give the birdhouse if he responds the way you want him to. You extend grace first. Not knowing the outcome. Trusting God with the outcome. You extend grace before you know the outcome. Now this young girl, Mary, 13, 14 years of age, would literally be filled with grace. Filled with the child of God, not knowing the outcome. And the child forming in her womb was the very embodiment of grace. The good news according to John chapter 1 says this, the word became flesh Jesus lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glories of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, love upon love, kindness upon kindness, mercy upon mercy. And the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. So, friends, when you give a gift to someone who doesn't deserve it. You know what we call that? Grace. I want you to think about the person in this world that you just would never, ever send a Christmas card to. That perhaps just a few nights ago, you marked them off the list because they went from the nice list to the naughty list. Not them. They're not getting a card this year. They're certainly not getting a gift. You see, Christmas is about grace, about connecting and serving and gifting those people. And so your action step tonight, I want to invite you to three things. The first is to humble yourself and to realize that the very air that we breathe tonight is a gift of God. Life itself is a gift. It's grace. I want to invite you to live by grace not not only if you've never known the Lord and to receive it for the first time and to receive salvation and to have a new life, but if you've been walking with the Lord a long time to receive grace again tonight, to go out and extend it to others. And to remember that for those of us who receive grace, if we don't extend it, it turns our heart to pride and crushes our spirit. But in the, when we extend grace, it crushes resentments and hurts and sorrows. We are to live by grace. So I really want to encourage you to extend grace to someone, that person who you've already crossed off your Christmas list. Extend grace to someone who does not deserve it in your mind. Because that's exactly what Christ did for you and for the world. We don't get what we deserve and we're very thankful about that around here. Christmas is a wonderful time. To share grace. So, if there's someone you know who's wronged you or hurt you, someone who does not deserve your kindness, or a gift, or even a Christmas card, what would happen if you showed this person grace? You see, we don't know whether that grace will transform them or not, but we do know that it transforms us. And that's enough. That when we give grace and love and forgiveness and mercy to those that we believe do not deserve it, we become more like our Maker, like our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself upon the cross, obedient even unto death. I invite you to send a Christmas card to someone that you're mad at. Give a gift to someone who's wronged you this year. Be people of grace. Because... We are to be people of what kind of news? Good news. Of what kind of joy? Great joy for how many people? All the people. In Jesus' name. Will you pray this closing prayer with me? Come, Lord Jesus. By Your Spirit, guide us to more grace-filled living, even as we acknowledge that we are undeserving of this rich gift. As we prepare for Your coming at Christmas, give us humble spirits and loving hearts.